And so that's why I'm trying to use the original word once in a while, just to make it clear that it's the word that there's controversy around, um, to make us understand. So chapter one, so St. Paul's writing to this group of people who are fighting, which sounds like everybody these days, because today we're all fighting about who's right and who's wrong um, in various things, and even more so these days. So chapter one, um, St. Paul let's loose on the Gentiles. Okay. So chapter one, he says, listen, guys, you think you're all that in a bag of chips. You're not. Um, here's your history, right? You guys were the people of God. Everybody was originally for the people of God and you guys refused him. You didn't even obey your consciences. Um, in fact, you guys turned to idolatry and you went nuts. So you guys as a people, you guys kind of suck. Okay. So he is now looking in his head, chapter two, he's looking at, okay, there's this theoretical Jew in his mind that he's dialoguing with. He's like, no, 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 no. You're like clapping, thinking, oh yeah, like the pagans, the, the pagans got told. Um, and so he turns on the Jews and says, no, 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 you're no better. Okay. You're no better because even though you had the covenant, you guys were the people of the circumcision, you guys are the people of the law, even though you guys had this special honor of being God's people, which he only did because the world rejected him, not because he was interested in having special people. You guys messed up at least as bad because you guys had the law, you guys had circumcision, you guys had the perks of being God's special people, and you still messed up royally. So you might have the circumcision, you might be part of a covenant, but that's completely useless because you broke your covenant. Because a covenant is as useful as those who are faithful to it. And so he's, he, in chapter three, he brings it back together to say, so you all messed up all of your deeds. Because a lot of people use Romans to make it sound like deeds don't matter. But actually, St. Paul is using deeds as the starting point. He's saying, none of your deeds were righteous, whether you were Gentile or whether you were Jewish. And so he's saying, so both of you have failed royally at this covenant with God, because none of you have lived up to it, right? So you, 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 you can't make it right. You can't make it right by, by just trying to be legal again, right? So it's like saying, you broke this cup, and then saying, but I'm still going to have tea. Paul is saying, no, you can't have tea anymore. The cup is broken. It's completely broken. And so he was setting up the stage for a new covenant. Okay. And so what does he do is he looks at Abraham first as an example to say, let me prove to you that what I'm saying as a Jew isn't crazy. Okay. Because He's thinking, okay, there's all these Jewish people who are listening and they're going to be like, what do you mean the covenant is okay for people who don't have the law? Because St. Paul is trying to say the person who makes us right with God, the thing that makes us able to have a relationship with God again, it's not the law. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He's saying he's the one who has made us right with the Father. So... We have to be faithful to him. The faithfulness of, of our Lord by 
coming down by being incarnate, by living the way man was supposed to, and by submitting himself to death, that faithfulness, that's what made us right with God. And so he's, again, dealing with this imaginary Jew who's looking at him saying, you're crazy. How can the faithfulness of one man fix this? Right? So he first looked at Abraham and said, well, look at Abraham. Abraham was made right with God before the circumcision and before the law. Right? So he's trying to say what made this man right with God was none of the things that you Jews value. Circumcision came later and the law came much later. Okay? That's, that's the point he's been trying to make in Romans 1 through 4. Okay? So Abraham is this every man's man. Okay? That, everybody's, that everybody um, can now look to, whether Gentile or Jew. I know it seems philosophical. Okay? So what's happened so far? St. Paul has been saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news, is able to make anybody right with God, Jew or Gentile. He's saying that both groups have been failing royally to how they were meant to be with God, just in different ways. Okay? For the pagans, it was through idolatry, and then for the Jews, it was through unfaithfulness. So he's saying it's not your deeds, it's not the law, it's not circumcision. Next, he's saying that everyone was doing sin, and that showed that sin took over the world. The power of sin had taken over the world and that humans were bound by this power. Because remember we said one of, the, one of the things that justification means is being set free. Okay, so he wants to show how we've also been set free from that. And then he wants to say that our being faithful to the good news makes God's restorative justice able to quit everybody. If this is complicated, don't worry. It's going to get more simple in a bit. I'm just trying to give a summary that's hard to do because it was four chapters. Um, and then he's saying that because it's Christ that fixes us, nobody can show off, right? Nobody can boast whether you're a pagan, like, ha, ha, look at us, we're so good, we believed. He's like, well, it's not you who did it, it's Christ. And if it's a Jew, he's saying, well, you can't boast the law. It wasn't the law that fixed you, it was Christ. There's no boasting now except in the work of Christ. And that Abraham was the perfect example of faithfulness, as well as how God can save anybody in spite of their circumcision and in spite of the law. That's the summary um, of one through four, is this concept of what St. Paul calls faithfulness for faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ demands a faithfulness um, of uh, humanity. So, what he's going to do, that's, that's chapter one through four is that section, okay? Now, where he's going to go with this, before I read you the chapter, okay, is that he is now going to take this further and say, all right, let's get into the nitty-gritty of what exactly being made right means, okay? That's what chapter five through eight is going to be about. Um, he's going to say, here's, here's what happened, right? So it's not just theoretical. Something occurred when we were made right it's not just this cool event that we talk about and say jesus is so cute and we love him right he's saying no something happened and he's getting into what that is and then he's going to get into how he feels badly for his own people how he feels badly for the jews um that'll be nine through eleven and then he's going to get into okay now that you get that there's a new deal um he's going to get into what are the terms of the new covenant? Because the covenant's an agreement, 
right? So he's going to get the last section is going to be what is this new agreement that we that we've got right now? Okay, so in chapter five, he's going to get into um, actually in this whole section, he's going to get into this shifting from being enemies with God to being um, friends with God. He's going to go from um, Adam uh, to Christ, like of what, what's different about, about that relationship. Um, he's going to go from slavery to show us how he went from slavery um, to righteousness. Um, and then finally, our shift from being flesh, from being bodily people to spiritual um, people. Okay, um, please don't hate me. Um, I want to go into one more thing before we actually read it. <laughs> um, because, again, this is a hard epistle. And so I'm really, really sorry. I know it's heavy. It's, it's not an easy epistle. Before we get into that, I just want to get into the sense of enmity, okay, of what it means. Because when we talk about being enemies with God um, and that our Lord is fixing this enmity, most people accidentally or mistakenly or something think that we're talking about God being mad at us. Okay. We look at it as the enmity of God towards um, us, but that's not really what it is. We need to look at enmity with the way that St. Paul would have looked at it, which was very dualistic, right? In St. Paul, his world is kind of divided up into two worlds. Those who are being saved and those who are dying. Those are the two kind of classes of people that are existing to, to our Lord. And he uses it all over the epistles. People who belong to the kingdom of light and those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. Um, those who belong to Christ and those who belong to this world. And there's an enmity between them. Okay, There's, a, there's, there's this, this disposition towards them. And so there's this, on top of this, there's this division between God and man that's happened through Adam. And that's why he's going to talk a lot about Adam in chapter 5. Um, and that there's this force of evil in the world that's taken over man and it's at war with God. And most people are living with the force of evil. Okay. So in all of this, this enmity or hatred, this is a hostility or an animosity directed at God. It's not a hostility of God directed at humans. Okay, that's really important for this, because when we're talking about reconciliation, we're not talking about a God who was angry at humans and, and, and disgusted with them, and that our Lord is coming in to say, well, how about you like them? They're really cute. They're really nice. That's not what's going on here. It's actually the opposite. It's, it's our Lord condescending to be made man, to fix man's disposition towards God so that we can be reconciled with God again. Um, any questions about that before I go on? Because then I'm going to read it and then we'll get into the nitty gritty. Okay. So I will read the whole chapter first and then, and then we'll, um, we'll dissect it. Okay. Again, remember that this chapter is going to be about how justification is doing something to us. It's not that it's causing something, and you'll see the difference after, okay? It's, it's one thing to say, oh, here's this event that happened in history, and so you got these gold coins. He's saying, 
justification is a process of changing something from within. So, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. While we were yet helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by him, by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of God the Father be with you all. Amen. Okay. So, what's going on here? So, we talked about, so here he's talking in general about the state of man, what happened with Adam, and then he's going to, he pits him up against our Lord, 
right? Which is why we, we call Christ the new Adam. We get that from St. Paul and from other places. Um, so first things first, he says, being made right by faithfulness, okay? Wherever you see the word faith, you can substitute from the Greek there, faithfulness. And I'm saying that because most of us think faith just means this act of believing. And that's not what St. Paul is talking about, right? St. Paul is talking about a whole disposition, a whole response to something. He's not talking about this individual declaration that we make. Um, so we've been made right by faithfulness, by the faithfulness specifically, actually, of Christ. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Okay? So, it is through Christ specifically that we now have reconciliation and access to the new covenant that we stand in. Okay? It wasn't by any, anything else. Right? It wasn't by somebody's law. It wasn't by somebody's declaration. It was not by anything. It was specifically the, word of, the, the work of Christ that has brought us into this period of grace. Okay? And so when he says now we have peace, we said that this enmity that we're talking about was a state of hostility, right? It was a state of enmity. It was a state of, of polarity. So St. Paul is saying, now we're not hostile, okay? Through this, this work that Christ did, humanity is no longer standing in hostility towards God, okay? Um, and to... The Romans, they were hearing this Pax Romana, right? They were hearing of the peace of the empire that they believed happened because Rome's conquest, right? Rome would be like, we need to conquer the world to make peace. We're uniting, right? We're, yes, we're leveling down the world, but now we can have this, this whole global peace. And St. Paul is saying that's not where peace comes from, okay? So it has a specific meaning even to the... Romans. He's saying, no, the state of our reconciliation actually is coming through the person of Christ, right? That's how we got our peace. Um, and that means that we're supposed to be in a peaceful disposition, right? So Master Origen, Origen is one of the best commentators in, in, in the whole Bible, but um, he actually makes a, a comment that I thought was very relevant to us with what's going on right now. Um, because he says, peace reigns, if you really want to live this peace, peace reigns when nobody complains, nobody disagrees, nobody is hostile, and nobody misbehaves. Therefore, we once were enemies of God following the devil, the great enemy and tyrant. Now we have thrown down his weapons and in their place taken up the signs of Christ and the standard of his cross and have peace with God. Right? So St. Paul is echoing this sentiment. He's saying, yeah, we were under the rule of Satan, which is exactly what St. Paul is talking about. But he was saying that the sign of our peace was that we would be peaceful, not complaining, not yelling, not mudslinging. Um, I think we would do well to take some thought about that um, in this position that we're in. Because ever since this house arrest um, has happened, I feel like everyone's mudslinging online. Um, everyone's having their debates about who's right and who's wrong and should we close or should we not close and 
who is more daring than another and that guy was willing to go to church and die and this person was not and this person said this and this like get over it um and the state of peace in our situation should be what we what we look at so the first thing he's saying is that the ability to be at peace this changing of our status this losing the 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 function of satan over us that came through the person of christ and none other then he continues and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of god actually more than that he says we rejoice in our sufferings very relevant today knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So first of all, hope means something is supposed to happen that hasn't happened yet. Okay. You don't, you don't hope for something that's already happened or you're weird. Um, or you're, or you don't know what's going on, right? You can't be like, oh, I hope, I hope that I can sit at this table and I'm sitting there, right? It's, it's nonsense. So he's saying we have hope. So he's talking about something still going to happen. Why am I saying that? Because justification for St. Paul, salvation is something still being worked through, okay? It's not this thing that occurred in, in a moment and it was finished. He's saying it's begun. It's begun in Christ. It's being worked through Christ and it's still happening. We still have hope. Okay. Um, but let's look at his sequence because I like, I, this is one of my favorite verses in the epistle. But um, trials first. Okay. He says first is tribulation. So think about gold or minerals, right? Like when you want to pull something out, you take out this, this, this metal, okay? Um, and you fire it, literally, right? Or when you want to make pottery, you literally, you fire it. You put it through fire. That putting it through fire firms up that thing, okay? And that's what shows that thing's character so gold for example you take it you mine it or you sift it you do whatever you're going to do or silver whatever this precious metal is and then you put it through fire what do you do when you do that all of the impurities are removed all of the dirt is removed and what do you end up with only this pure metal right that's how you see it um that's how the character of gold is shown, right? You didn't get to see, what I'm trying to say is, until it's gone through that process, you can see glimpses of the gold, but you don't see gold. You don't see gold in its full glory. So you could never say, oh, I know what gold looks like, actually, if it's not gone through that, right? And so this hope that we're talking about, this characteristic, this thing that belongs to a Christian is only seen when it goes through trials. Otherwise, there's no character shown. Do you see the analogy? It's like if you make a table, how do you know if it's a good table? By using it. If you don't use it, you don't know if it's a good table. It might look pretty, but if you went to sit at the first time and you leaned your elbow on it and it fell down, it was a, it was a pretty crummy table, right? Same thing if you make a chair. 
if you sit on it and it can't stand somebody's weight, it's, it's a crummy chair. It's not a chair that's made to withstand real use, right? So St. Paul is saying it's only through tribulation that the, that the true character of a Christian can be seen. There's no other way. And that's why St. Anthony said, no tribulations, no salvation, period, right? And that's why so many Desert Fathers and Mothers echoed on the same, but he said it first because he's the best. Um, and so it's the character of the Christian that possesses the hope. Why I'm saying that, that's part of your being, okay? It's a characteristic of you. It's not this thing out there that you're supposed to grab on and, and bring in. It's something in you that needs to be expressed outwardly. How is that happening? Through the Holy Spirit. And so that's why it's so important that Christ had said this thing for you to express your hope in and many other things that we're going to get into, but not in this chapter. Christ said, I have to go. I have to go. Or you won't get that spirit. Because part of my making you right with my dad, with my father, okay, is that I, as a perfect human, have to go as someone wholly human and wholly God into heaven. Because through me, heaven and earth are now reconciled. Okay, our justification is through Jesus Christ. And because of that being made right with God, that's how we get the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit can now dwell in us. Is that clear for everyone? If it's not, raise your hands now. I'll take, I'll take them on that because that's, it's, it's really, really, really important. I think there's a raise your hand function, just so you know. If you go to chat or participant, there's a hand option. Okay, somebody's got their hand up. Okay, he's gone. Um, someone's saying, please um, repeat. So what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit was something we couldn't have when humanity um, was at war with God, right? And that's why our Lord said, it says in, in Genesis, uh, I think it's 5.2 or 6.2, my spirit will no longer fight with men, right? He's like, you're, you're at war with me. I'm not, I'm not here to fight you, okay? If you want evil, you can have it. I'm not going to fight with you. And so because of that, right, this is all, everything goes back to Genesis. Because of that, man was in this disposition of enmity with God, right? So now we're in this dilemma where it's like, okay, let me, let me step back and give a better analogy. I hope this helps. God is saying, okay, I made you. I love you. We're meant to be together. We're meant to be one. I didn't make you because I hate you. I made you because I actually love you. I made you because I am love. And then he said, but I'm going to give you a choice. You love me or love me back because I'm not going to force you to love me because you can't force love. Man said, we don't like you, actually. We're going to choose us. 
So we are going to fight you. We're going to do what we want. And God said, okay, no problem. And he didn't stop dealing with man. So I'm not going to go through all of that. He still dealt with man. And he was like, but I'm still going to fix this. But man couldn't fix it. This is what St. Paul is saying. Man couldn't fix it, right? Man couldn't somehow raise their hand and say, aha, we're no longer corrupt, right? Like you can't raise your hand and be like, ta-da, I'm not diabetic, right? You can't raise your hand and say, ta-da, I don't have such and such disease. You can't do that. The only, and there's nothing you can physically do. That's what St. Paul has been saying. Nothing you could physically do could fix you. You've got these rules that give you good hygiene. Great. That, that's cool. It helps you realize what health is. But those rules are not actually what make you healthy. The only one who can make you healthy is the true physician of our souls and bodies. And that's what Christ did. Right? So only through Christ could he say, ta-da, we're good now. So that the Holy Spirit could come again on man and live in man and not be at war. Is that clear? Cool. So that's one of the biggest, that's why Christ had to ascend to the Father to give us the spirit that St. Paul talked about in verse, verse five. Okay. And what does not disappoint um, when he says, um, and hope, this hope of the spirit does not disappoint us. He's talking about the future because hope is the future. He's saying this hope is something that's not going to bring us shame. He's saying, be confident, right? Because you could go wagging your tail, right? And be like, um, no, I, I, I really hope we're going to be saved. Anytime now, Jesus is going to come and we're going we're to be okay, right? And you've got this inner fear, of like, right, Jesus, right? Um, and St. Paul saying, no, don't have that disposition. Don't, don't have that mood of like, I'm not really sure. He's saying, no, have conviction. Say it boldly. Say, my God is coming and I will be made right and I will be reconciled to him and I actually have a firm hope in my salvation because that is the Father's disposition towards me, Right? God wants peace with me. So if I want peace with God, and if I'm faithful, that's why it's not just faith, it's faithfulness, I have no reason to be afraid. This is why Christ said, it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is not his wailing duty to let you in. Right. That's why Ember Ruiz, for those of you who know him, he's he's a modern day saint. But um, Ember Ruiz, whenever he used to preach at our at our church, he'd always make the comment of, "I really think that anybody in hell really, really wants to be there." He's like, because God doesn't want them there. Like, and God is ready to meet anything we're doing. That's why just struggle to be faithful. Verse six, before Christ. As we read, we didn't have hope. So verse 6, he's coming back to that. So he's saying, you're hopeful now because you have the Holy Spirit. But before this, while we were yet helpless at the right time, the right time being what we talked about of saying man was in this, this bad place. We were at this place of enmity with God. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why one would hardly die 
for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is the thesis that Paul is presenting here? Christ's death is God's love. Okay? This, <laughs> the depth and beauty of this, like, like that, that, that could be its own retreat. But the apostle is saying, guys, listen, we were so hopeless. We were hopeless. We were miserable. And on top of it, we were miserable because of our own, our own issues. Okay? We weren't victims, is what he's saying. Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, you're not a victim. The position that you were in was not because someone did something to you. You did it, whether you're a Jew or Gentile. That was chapters 1 through 3. All of you messed it up on your own. All of us messed up on, on our own. Then he says, okay, let me challenge you to something. Which of you would be willing to die for a good guy? Like, most of you aren't going to give up your life for some dude that's, that's just a good guy. Right? We're like, oh, he's a good guy. I'll, I'll die for him. He's a, he's a good guy. Right? You, that's not a thing. Right? And then he says, okay, you know what? I'll, 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 I'll grant that maybe, maybe one of you might be willing to die for a good man, right? There might be some guy out there who's willing to do that. Let's grant that. But he's saying, let me tell you about God's love, agape. This is not philanthropy, okay? Philanthropy is people are nice to each other. We do good deeds. We hand each other money. It's cute. It's nice. It's, it's, it's a nice thing. But agape is something different. He's saying that Christ, while we were in a state of disease, while we were in a state of filthiness, unworthiness, anger, enmity, in fact, we were cussing God out. In that state that we were in, Christ condescended to humanity. He emptied himself of his rights, right? He says, I, the unlimited, for these people who are all of those negative things, I don't view them like that. These are my kids, right? I love them. I will condescend to my rebellion kids who hate my guts, who think I'm evil, who are willing to listen to anyone but me as though other people care, who put up idols in their house saying, ha, 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 you're not my dad. That's what the Gentiles are doing, right? The pagans, right? Or these other ones who put up my picture, right? While, sorry, using the picture as their plate to put to eat their dinner off of. Desecrating his name while pretending to be his kids. He's saying, while we were doing that, he came and died for those people in that state, being unrighteous, being unfaithful. So he's saying his death was not contingent upon our righteousness. He didn't say, I'll do this for them if and when they get it right. He says, I will die in spite of their unrighteousness to make them right. 
That's justification. Okay? That's what it means to be made right with God. This is, this is the love of God. Right? This is not just the love of God. Because Paul says faithfulness for faithfulness. He's saying, if that's Christ's faithfulness, that's who you are supposed to be. Because we respond with faithfulness to God's faithfulness. I've sometimes, as a priest, done this horrible thing, right? Where I'm in a bad mood, okay? So, like, I just, so that it's not like a, oh, back in the day, I was this horrible person. No, I'm still a horrible person. I'll be in a bad mood, and someone will ask me something that I think isn't the right time, and I'll snap, right? And even if I don't snap out loud because I don't want to look bad, not because I'm nice, um, maybe I'll snap internally. And I'll have this internal like thing going on of doesn't this person know that it's not the right time or doesn't this person know that's not how you do it right they should have approached like this right or they should have considered this or blah 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 i'm not even talking about dying i'm talking about like a text right and i'm often not willing to deny myself for that person on text right? I don't respond with agape. Um, I, I respond with enmity. Um, and, I, and I demand them, this is the complete antithesis of agape, I'm demanding them to come up to me, right? I'm saying, no, you come meet me where I'm at. I'm not coming to you where you're at. I'm a, I'm a crappy priest, I say it out loud, okay? How many of us do the same? right? Because this is not just a theology of how we're made right with God, but this is how we're supposed to live. How many of us have thought of, no, when he or she respects me, then we can talk, right? That's, that's usually our starting place, right? No, you come to the table, collect yourself, now talk to me, right? This is not agape. <laughs> this is not the new covenant. And St. Paul is saying, our God, our God didn't do that. Not only did he not do that, he died for a people who are so messed up. That's our God, right? That, that's why he's saying, don't boast in anyone, but that God. That's who to boast in. Verse 9. Since therefore, we're now, whenever it says justified, I'm going I'm to try and use the different meanings for it. Since we're now made right, with God, by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I'm going to come back to this wrath business because everyone's fighting about it. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So what is the wrath of God? Does God have wrath? Yes, he does. Okay, because I'm seeing two camps that seem to be coming out to play um, or fight of there's no such thing as God's wrath. He's just so cute and lovely. He's our great teddy bear in the sky. And anyone who thinks he has wrath is so uneducated and, 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 and so, so OT. They're so Old Testament. We're, we're, we're NT folk and we get it. Then you've got another extreme that's like God is so pissed at you. And because you didn't do all of these things, he's coming down and you're meeting the divine wrath of God and he's going to burn you alive because you're filthy. But he loves you. 
and these two are very hard to reconcile when you pose them against each other like that's a thing. So that's not how our God works. Does God have wrath? Yes. But God doesn't have emotions. So God doesn't have this pent-up mood that comes up where he's like, no, I'm, I'm taking it, I'm taking it, I'm taking it, and then with one fell swoop, like, whacks the person and knocks them out. That's not how it works, okay? God's wrath is the collision, like we said in one of the earlier Bible studies, of light and dark. When darkness meets with light, it annihilates it, okay? Um, for those who are interested, me and when Anthony had a phone call conversation that's online to get more details, I don't want to rehash it all out. But when light meets darkness, darkness does not find a place. Not because lightness is a, light is a jerk. Not because light is saying, oh, I would like all this praise and glory. It's none of that. It's who God is. It's what light is that makes no room for darkness when it hits. God hates sin. Always. OT, NT, big hat, small hat, holy hat, righteous hat, sinner hat. God hates sin always. No matter who you are, how sophisticated you are, or how not sophisticated you are. God loves humans. Period. All of them. Period. That's why, while we were yet in sin, he died for us. If he hated us, if he was mad at us, he doesn't do that. He hates what sin is doing to us, right? Any parent, any good friend, anyone with a close relationship, when they see something take over someone they care about, right? Ask any parent, let's say there's some dude that made their, their kid go crazy, as much as it's a sin, ask any parent, I bet you most of them would say, I want to kill that guy. I want to kill the guy that did this to my kid. Right? They, they, they immediately do. Ask a mom, though, whose son has been convicted of being a serial killer if they still love their kid. And they probably burst into tears and say, I don't, I don't, know, how, I don't know how not to love my kid. I don't know how to not want mercy for my kid. I, I'll admit that what my kid did, did, did is, is heinous. But he's my kid. And I love him. Right? And in fact, some of them might even, if it was possible, to take the blame on them and make themselves look guilty. I bet you many, many parents would do that. But where our parents fail, God doesn't. And so God's wrath was and is a thing. But he's saying, we're freed from this because we've been made right by his blood. He's saying we're not anymore in a state where the proper response of God towards us is to annihilate us because of the sin in us, okay? Not his own people. That's why, how did God deal with his wrath in the Old Testament? He destroyed the temple. He spared the people. They thought their going into captivity in Babylon was a punishment on them. On some level, it was a chastisement, yes. But who did he destroy, the people or the temple? 
He took the temple. He said, let me, let me, let me kill the temple. Let's kill the lamb. Let's kill the lamb. And he wasn't saying killing the lamb makes you right with God. That's why St. Paul is saying your killing lamb didn't fix it. But we didn't have a sin problem as much as we had a death problem. So Christ's death specifically, not just Christ's incarnation as a standalone thing, Christ's death, St. Paul is saying, that is specifically how we found peace with God. And it's specifically his life, he says in these verses, because we, we are saved by his life, by his resurrection. That gives us salvation. That's what baptism is. Baptism is drowning. Baptism is death. Right? And we go in with him. And that's why if you look at ancient baptismal fonts, right, they often would have three steps that descend um, from the west and three steps to ascend from the east when you went into it. So that you would understand that you come in from a state of sin, you're dead, and you come out risen with Christ. It's only by his death and resurrection are we fixed. Why? He submitted to death because St. Paul is saying death ruled over us. That's the domain of sin. That's why part of justification to St. Paul is hope, its future, its eternal life, that we had lost from the days of Adam. It's not theoretical. It's real. Right? And that's why the message of the church is always Christosanisti. Right? That's why if you're crying at a funeral, I hope it's only because you miss them and not because you think they're dead. Otherwise, you don't have the hope in you. Right? Otherwise, the hope of eternal life is not there. Um, verse 11. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're only able to have joy in God through our Lord, through whom we now have received our reconciliation. So here's a dogmatic statement of St. Paul. Reconciliation is through Christ. Plain and simple. Reconciliation with God. Justification is through Christ alone. We don't disagree with the Protestants on this point. Okay? This is a true teaching of the church. So let me summarize this section because then he's going he's gonna to shift gears. I hope I haven't lost any of you and I hope you're not bored out of your mind. I'm sorry. So our, verse 11, our reconciliation with God or peace is, is our peace. Okay. With God is a state of grace. We are now in this new state of free gift where we're not under the law. Second, believers are now able to be in grace because of God's faithfulness now that we're, we've been made peace the state of enmity between man and God is dissolved now those who are outside of grace Jews or covenant Gentiles are now in it okay the person of Jesus Christ Jew and Gentile is now in a state of grace now, we are not acquitted, that's one of the meanings of, of justification, because of what we did. We're acquitted because our Lord caused something in his justification. He caused a change in us. 
Why am I making that point? This declaration of acquittal by God is not God saying, I no longer call you guilty. Because there are some traditions in Christianity today that are saying that. Okay, and we, a lot of us listen to the music that repeats it over and over. I'm not against that. I'm saying understand it because that's not what God is saying. God is not saying, I'm no longer calling you guilty who are guilty, right? God is never going to pretend that somebody doing wrong is good and right for doing that. Instead of saying, I no longer call you guilty, it's really God saying, I've made you right with me. It's a different meaning. He goes further, further to say, specifically the cross does this, and that justification has effects that are immediate. Okay, this is what I'm saying. It's a process for St. Paul. The immediate effect of justification is I'm at reconciliation with God. We're good. But there's still a future aspect. That's why I think one of the best ways to resolve some of these fights that people have um, is to understand that justification and salvation are not the same thing. But that salvation must include justification as a prerequisite. They're not divorced from each other. Um, that's important theologically and spiritually. And I don't like to use and. I go, because it's important theologically, therefore it's important spiritually. Because spiritually, if you think everything is like momentous, okay, these huge moments, then you're looking for those gut-wrenching, tear-jerking moments where everybody jumps into the Jordan and comes out crying, right? And you're like, oh, praise Jesus, I'm saved and I'm good, and they cry, right? And, and it's nice. Those are very nice moments. I'm not, I'm not saying those aren't real. Emotions are, are nice. But they end after the moment. So if you don't understand that this is a work in progress, you don't understand the depths and the hardships of warfare. That's why St. Paul said, no, 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 there's tribulation. Right? He, he immediately joined the two. Um, and that it's the hardships of our justification that produce glorification. You can't be glorified without purification. Purification is the cross die. That's what he's saying. Um, anyone who knows me well, I'm obsessed with Lord of the Rings. That's what Lord of the Rings is about. If you want to understand what St. Paul is saying here, watch Lord of the Rings. Um, because it shows you the brutality and the pain and the exhaustion of doing right. And how lonely it is to bear that burden and yet how compulsory it is. And that the only way to get there is to do it together. There's no other way. Everyone puts their life on the risk for everyone else. Whether it's the dwarves, the elves, men, everybody. Everybody is on, is on the same team. It's the fellowship of the ring, right? And if everybody has to go, pardon my digression, I'm obsessed. Um, but is that, those of you who have seen it, spoiler alert, when 
the ring gets destroyed. <laughs> when Frodo goes back, he can't go back. He's changed. He's changed. Right? That's what happens when we go through anything difficult. Think of all of your toughest times in life, right? And think about whether or not you miss it at all today. Depending on how long ago it's been might affect how much you miss it or not, right? I know that for me, my most difficult, darkest times today are my favorite. And they made me learn the most I ever have in my life about God. Because it was relating to this God that St. Paul is talking about. The God who suffers, the God who condescends, the God who puts himself down. And so the apostle is saying, we are justified and reconciled with God now. But there's still a future acquittal, a future glory, based on the death of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. Salvation is in progress. It's not complete. Okay? Now, this next section, okay, is going to talk about how we got liberated from capital sin, capital sin, to enter um, into grace. Okay, so how is it that we went from this dominion, okay, of sin, this power of sin over us into this new covenant? And so this can't happen without going back to Adam, as we've seen in 99% of all Bible studies. So St. Paul is going to contrast Adam and Christ to show how this expiation works. Now, Note how he said, before sin, small s, uh, sorry, before the law, we didn't know sin, small s. We didn't know what it was, right? Until somebody gave you the manual, you didn't know that shoving the pen into the auxiliary cable is a bad idea, okay? You needed the manual to show you that. Um, but he's saying that doesn't mean there is no such thing as unrighteousness. Just because you didn't know doesn't mean that, right? So for example, it's like saying, I was eating junk food, not knowing there was such thing as health. So St. Paul is saying, okay, yeah, yeah, you didn't, you didn't understand it. I, I get it. But that didn't mean there was no such thing as health. There was still objectively something called health. Okay. So before we get into this, the law, what is the law? Sorry for being a broken record, especially the Cali crew who have probably heard this 5 million times. The law is the ruler, okay? The law is putting down a straight line by which you know whether or not lines are straight without there being a standard you can make no definition. The law is the establishment of a noun because without a noun, you can't have adjectives and you can't do verbs you only have nothing. That's why God is the absolute noun. <laughs> okay? Now, the law was put so that people would understand what righteousness is. Why? Because righteousness isn't a set of works. It's an identity. Okay? So, it's not a contradiction that he's going to go back to Adam as an, as an example. And why I'm saying that is because Paul made a bold statement, right? So he's actually saving himself. If you can read Paul in his normal language, Paul's like making a safe because 
he made a bold proclamation that before the law, there was no sin. But then people will be like, so then nobody did anything wrong? And so he's, he's, so he needs to kind of make a say. So he's saying, no, 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 there was still such thing as wrong because there was such thing as righteousness. So we'll get into it. So he's going to say that the sin of all of us, all humans, is the reason why capital S sin or death reigns over us. Okay, he's trying to say what caused us to be in enmity, what caused us to be in enmity was us. Okay, um, and he's saying that the sin of Adam had consequences for sure, but he's actually going further than that, and a lot of Jews did too. He's saying, but we all behave as Adam. So he's saying it's not just Adam's sin. Adam is a good type, a good image of, 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 of humanity. He's saying, but actually we all behaved as Adam did, and that's why sin became universal. So he's going to say that Adam is a foreshadowing of Christ and that he's going to say, okay, if we can through one man, some guy named Adam, all be found guilty and that through one person we're all born in corruption, not biologically, then it follows that. It's not weird that, because he's remember that he's dealing with some Jews here too who might be being like, you're crazy, this is all crazy talk, right? He's saying that, no, no, no. If it made sense that you, as a Jew, can say that through one man named Adam, everybody fell, it should make sense to you that through one man, the new Adam, our Lord Jesus, then we can now be born in incorruption. He's saying you either believe in that or you don't. And that is through this person that we're liberated from sin. Okay, so now here's this contrast. Verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So he's saying, okay, one guy came, one guy messed up, through that we died. Death took over because all men sinned. Everybody was doing it. Sin indeed, so he, this is where he's backtracking. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. It was still wrong just because they didn't know. It didn't make it not, not right, not wrong. But sin isn't counted where there's no law, right? So St. Paul is saying, we just weren't held culpable because we didn't know. So a law, quote unquote, had been broken. A wrong had been happened. We were just not held culpable. That's all. Yet death still reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression um, of Adam. Okay. So the entrance of the law, the existence of the ruler, changed humanity's situation. Right. It's like when I moved to this to or anybody who drives in Quebec. Um, right? That's one of our provinces for you Americans who don't know what that is. Um, Americans. Um, you can't turn right on a red light in Montreal, right? Everybody in Ontario can, right? So if you go there and you say, oh, I didn't know, they might not hold you culpable. They will. I've, I haven't gotten a ticket yet, but they will. Um, but you still did, a, you still committed a crime in the eyes of the law. So he's saying that something shifted in the history of humanity when God gave us the law because we couldn't pretend not to know, right? You couldn't go in and be like, I'm sorry, I'm from Ontario, I didn't know. Um, like I tried in the States when I thought it was a turning light and it wasn't. Um, the, actually what the judge said to me was, um, not knowing the law doesn't make it not a crime. He was a very friendly judge. 
Um, and so St. Paul is saying that happened to all of, of humanity. But the free gift is not like the transgression. He's saying the grace of God, the way that God deals with us, though, is not like sin. He's saying that, okay, even though lots of people die because of one guy's mistake, that the result of many people dying, the result of one person sinning made many people sin, which made many people die, is saying that the grace of God is the opposite. One man's grace is doing tons of good for everybody. Saying it's the exact opposite of what Adam did. And this free gift has a completely different effect than that guy's sin, Adam. Saying because the judgment that came from one guy's mess up brought everyone under condemnation. Okay, what does that mean? Let's say your dad gambled all his money and he had been rich. And so now you're born into a family that's dirt poor. Your dad's transgression made you all live in poverty. That's what St. Paul's saying, okay? So he's saying that Adam's mess up screwed you all over, okay? Because of it, we're all born in sin. We're all born poor. We're in this state of capital S sin. And he's saying, but what Christ did is different. Because with Adam, it was okay. He messed up. It made you all poor. But he was saying, but it was worse than that. Because he goes, it wasn't just that he made you poor. It was that you were all stupid with your money as well. Like, so it wasn't just Adam messed up and you were all fine. He was like, no, no, no. Adam messed up and all of you did. You're all done with your money. And he's saying, but Christ as one person, with this thing that he did, made you all rich without you needing to make yourself rich. He was like, this is crazy, right? Like where he was like, you didn't then actually become a crazy good accountant or lawyer or engineer or whatever the trinity is of, 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 of the Egyptians now for careers. He was like, you didn't even have to go to college and get rich. I made you rich, all of you, all at the same time by one man. So he's saying, this grace is crazy awesome. You should, you should, you should sign up. Um, so he's saying that, one guy brought us condemnation. This one person of Jesus Christ brings justification, makes us right. And if because of one man's mistake, death took over, way more is the abundance of grace and the free gift of being made right and actually reigning in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Right? You've got to understand that to a first century Jew or Gentile, like the only emoji, emoji, emoji for this is like the mind blown thing with the starry eyes. That that would be the the like most readers. Some of them would have the fury emoji, um, but it would be like, whoa, this makes sense because the Jews are trying to make sense of this. How does this work? How can Jesus be the one who fixes this and not there be a law? Okay. Um, then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, like one man's mistake made us all in a horrible position, one man's good deed, deed led to our acquittal. So if we were all in debt because of Baba's mistake, okay, he's saying our debt was dissolved 
dissolved through one man's sacrifice. Um, law came in to increase the trespass. Um, we already talked about that, so I won't go into that. So, what is he saying? Through the death of our Lord. I'm almost done now, don't worry. Our Lord liberated believers. Anyone who becomes faithful to our Lord, to the gospel. From sin, death, and the law. Okay? Those three things have been conquered through Christ. Sin, death, and the law. So because of that, the death of Christ, like, is this like humongous apocalyptic event to the Jew. Okay, like this is, this is like, whoa, that just happened, right? Today we're born in the New Testament. We're just kind of like, yeah, cool, whatever. This is a long chapter. I hope it's over, right? Whereas this was to those first Christians. And so this is why Paul is summarizing the whole history of salvation. He's saying that, God's call to Abraham, okay, this, these elect Jews, was designed to reverse and undo the sin of Adam and its consequences. Because he's using them as part of the plan of the incarnation. Now, by fulfilling those promises through the Messiah's, through Christ's faithful obedience, God has made a new humanity. Okay? Now we're not the dead humanity. Now we're not the captive humanity. Now we are these liberated people. And so he's saying, within this story, the law had an important role that was kind of paradoxical. Because he's saying, on the one hand, the law was good. Okay? Because on the one hand, it was telling you who you're supposed to be. That was good. But it actually had a really negative side because it showed you who you are, right? It was the law basically served as this mirror and standing in front of a mirror is scary, right? Like that's why the boldest thing a human can do is to confront himself. Um, he who knows himself knows God, St. Anthony the best saint in the world again. Um, so with Genesis 3 in the background, okay, the fall of man, St. Paul's explaining that Adam's sin brought death, okay, but that the law didn't fix that. Okay, is it all coming together now? So he's saying, okay, Adam brought sin, then we got the law, and he's now the Jews like, aha, we're people of the law, we're holy, we're righteous, we have the law. And he's saying, no, you're not. The law didn't fix it. Knowing why you're dumb with your money doesn't fix your debt. And unless you have money, you can't pay off your debt. So good for you. You've learned the banking system. Wonderful. Mabruk alik. Right? Congrats. But that didn't fix it. Right? It's like all of us do after we've made the mistake where we get our exam back. Right? And we're like, oh, like, I should have written this. And it's like, that's right, Tips. That's why it was the wrong answer, <laughs> not the right one. 
because you wrote it wrong. So, alf mabruk alayk, congrats that you found out the right answer, but that didn't fix that you had it wrong, <laughs> right? Or after you got in the car accident being like, my mistake is that I didn't realize it was red. And it's like, correct. And that's why you got in the car accident, okay? So he's saying, yeah, the law showed you why you're wrong, <laughs> but it didn't fix it. It didn't fix that you were dying. The only one who can fix that you're dying is life. You chose enmity. And this is the beauty of God. He's saying you chose enmity. And you couldn't fix it. And if you want to take it a little further than what St. Paul says in this chapter. You didn't even ask to fix it. You went to war with me, and I'm your dad. And you couldn't fix it, but you didn't even show that you wanted it. And that's why he's saying that the depth of your sin demanded the righteousness of God. Because God doesn't want to be in enmity. And so your depravity, my depravity, necessitated God's agape. It forced God to enter existence in a way completely foreign to himself. Of saying, I will become you. I will show you. I will be you. I will die as you in solidarity with you so that I can transform you. This is what St. Paul is saying, right? And that is, there's nothing more beautiful than that. But as we'll see, and I'll end there, the people just like to yell. And so he's got these naysayers because in every generation, all we want to do is fight. He's got these people who start shouting at him and be like, aha, well then maybe the, philosoph the philosophers, right, are saying, well then maybe it wasn't so bad that we did bad. Because if our doing bad necessitated God to do good, then maybe we helped God out. <laughs> and so in chapter six, St. Paul will proceed to say, well, that's dumb. Um, and so this chapter is... Behold the depths and riches of the love of God. This is that he took what is ours and gave us what is his. To him be glory and honor and worship now and always. Any questions, comments, um, meditations, anything you guys want to get into. Forgive me as I try and figure this out, guys. I know it might be long and, and not interactive, and I'm sorry. Um, I'm not really sure what to do, to be honest with you. Um, Abuna Joe, I'll leave you to do the 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 choosing so that I don't uh, mess up. Right. If you guys just want to put in your questions in the chat, Abuna, you just go ahead. Like, uh, if you have access to the chat, so hold on. Fine for everybody. <laughs> David and Tone, I miss you, David. By the way. Um, 
<laughs> my sister's a lawyer. Um, <laughs> these, some of these, these comments are hilarious. Um, when are we getting a spiritual breakdown of Lord of the Rings? Uh, sorry, I'm trying to find the questions. So we have one at 9.14 uh, p.m. Abuna, he came and fixed the human condition and returned the spirit to man, but for what? For us to continue to be away from him and to sin? Ah, no. For precisely the opposite, right? So he was saying, okay, the original state of man was perfection. It was health, okay? And... Man didn't have a solution to health because he gave up God, right? So if we call God the remedy and and health the noun, the objective, right? Then he's saying, okay, you guys tossed away the remedy. You didn't want it. That was the Holy Spirit. That was the indwelling of God, which which brings with him the the Holy Trinity. You tossed out the remedy, so you became sick. And you couldn't make yourself healthy. I gave you the law so that you would understand health, so that you could understand what a proper kidney should function like, what a proper liver should function like. That's what the law did, right? So the law gave you that knowledge of what health should look like. What our Lord did is say, I have restored health because you couldn't restore your own health. And I have given you back the remedy so that you can stay in a state of communion with me. You no longer need to live in a state of disease. Whenever you want now, you can have health. So can I still get sick? Yeah, I can. But now I have access to the remedy freely. That's that's the difference. Okay, we have another question um, from Mariam uh, at 916 in the comments. It says, is it just that God does not have active, capitals, so have active emotions, or is it that he does, but not like us, so that we cannot comprehend? Can you say that again? Sorry. Okay. Is it that God does not have active emotions or is it that he does, but not like us so that we can't com- comprehend? No, he doesn't, have act- he doesn't have active emotions because emotions have relativity to them. And God can't be relative, right? Like we can be happy, less happy, more happy. We can be affected by things. Whereas for God, anything in God is a state of his being. It's a really, really hard concept for us because we're relative always, no matter what. We're always going to be like subjective. But for God, there's no such thing. Okay, next question is, you mentioned that humanity didn't ask to fix their state. Did they know what they were in in this state to even ask? Did they know that they were even in this state yes. to even ask? Yes, because that's the whole point of the Old Testament, right? It's saying that when man strayed from God, God didn't stop dealing with humanity, right? Like, actually, it's God who initiated humanity, right? Even with Cain and Abel. When Cain and Abel mess up, God is speaking to them. Well, Cain messed up, right? Um, The judges, the prophets, all these people. This is God initiating with humanity. 
and not the opposite, and God calling humanity. That's what the whole Old Testament is about, is God's interaction with the people of God while working out the new covenant, right? It wasn't, it wasn't that the old covenant, God had to think about it and say, let's try this. The plan was always the incarnation, right? The old covenant was put there as, as a help and as necessitated by man, right? It's like, it's like how we're dealing with this whole mess. Not, I, I know it's, I'm, everyone's probably over it by now, this whole COVID thing, where it's like, okay, we're, we're working. The vaccine is going to come out at the right time. In the meantime, please uh, observe these behaviors. So the, the old covenant was like that. But God was always um, saving. He was always in the New Testament. Just were in time, so we were. Okay, next question. You've got a few. Um, sorry to make you repeat this. Uh, this is from Mark Ibrahim. Sorry to make you repeat this. Why was his ascension a prerequisite to receive the Holy Spirit? And since it was, didn't Christ breathe into the face of the apostles while he was still on the earth saying, receive ye the Holy Spirit? Yes, he had already died and risen when he did that. Um, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit come down upon them. So they received gifts of the Spirit, just like in the Old Testament also, um, the Spirit worked on people. But the gift of, of receiving and keeping the Spirit happened on the day of Pentecost, when it came on everyone, including the apostles again. All right, next question is from Jesse. If the wrath of God is when light and dark meet and not... Uh, ira an irrational reaction is he still making a decision on what to do as a response to wrath like you were saying he destroyed the temple not the people explain a little more I think when you say response to wrath you might mean response to sin um, so God is still our dad right so the day of wrath, and that's why St. Paul talks about it as a future day, right? Paul is talking about your acquittal on a future day about when you stand before God in your judgment, right? Which isn't a pleasant thought. But the day of, that's the future one. But if you are in a relationship with God, then God chastises. Any good parent would, right? So, for example, um, if you're addicted to drugs and you're getting your money from your parents, your dad might say, I'm not going to give you money anymore. That's not your God. That's not your dad um, being punitive, right? That's, that's your God. That's your father being restorative, right? Of saying, no, you can't do that. Right. Or let's say you have like some toy and it has different speed settings and you're using it on top speed and it's, it's crashing around, breaking things in the house, then your parent might go and slow it down to prevent the problem. You might perceive it as a punishment of saying, Oh, because I did this, they made it slow, but that's not what the, that's not what the parent is doing. Right? So God can chastise. Um, but the day of wrath is a future day. The day of, of, of reckoning um, is, is a future day. Okay, we have a couple more questions. 
Um, can you please explain the concept of original sin? Is this the main understanding of the Coptic church or do different church fathers describe different perspectives? Um, for the sake of not having a stupid debate, and I don't mean that about whoever asked the question, I don't even know who asked the question. Um, I think today everybody is trying to make people say things that they're not. So whenever somebody uses a term, whether they're using the word original sin, ancestral sin, whatever terminology you want to use, I don't care. Ask the person, what do you mean when you say that? Okay. Um, so what we mean by original sin is we are referring to that first transgression. Some people, when they say original sin, mean that I inherit a guilt of, of Adam in my birth. But even Augustine, on whom a lot of this is, is based, even Augustine wasn't saying that. I finally went and read Augustine himself recently. Even Augustine himself was only saying, we are referring to that when Adam specifically sinned, something happened to all of us. We all agree on that. So, what I am talking about when I say original sin, because I'm not, I can't speak for the whole world, is that we receive the consequence of what Adam did. This is what I meant when I said when daddy spent his money badly, we were born poor. I'm not born guilty that Baba isn't a good financial manager, but I definitely bear the consequence that I cannot ignore what dad did because it sent all of us into a downward spiral of poverty. I think that everyone speaking about original sin would agree on all of that. Um, but I, I, I don't care to defend the discussion about guilt or not guilt. I, I would say that most fathers from my reading didn't speak about inherent inheriting guilt in a punitive sense. Um, because again, if you, you have to read the original languages, what do they mean when they say it? So I don't want to get into the semantics, but the end result is the same. Because of what one person did, we all inherited a status of poverty. Okay, uh, there's a, a number of questions all related to God not having emotion. So okay. I think I'm going to try to read them in an order that kind of makes sense, if that's okay, because I think you'll be able to answer them all together. Okay. So I'll, I'll start with the first one that kind of sets the tone is, but doesn't God have anger and love? Those are emotions, right? And then the next person wrote, this might be off topic and I feel free and feel free to ignore. But like you said, it is a bit hard to understand the concept of God and emotions. I thought that some of the church fathers said, for, for example, when Christ says, Eli, Eli, the Masabaktani, Christ said this because God looked away in sadness because of what had to happen to his son for the rest of humanity or was this different and then finally was the idea about if god doesn't have emotions why do we might sound stupid but what was the point does having emotions have any salvific value if god himself doesn't have emotion how do we reconcile god not having emotion to our goal to adapt the fruits of the spirit isn't love and emotion so it's i guess all three of them are dealing with this you know Question of emotion. So no, love is not an emotion. Um, 
love is a being, it's God. Um, and love is self-denial. Um, that's how, I, that's my slogan, but really actually to be more accurate than love is self-denial, love is common will. Um, it's just that it usually necessitates a self-denial because we're usually wanting our own. That's why the, the Trinity, they don't need to deny themselves for another. They have perfect will. So love, no, love's not an emotion. Um, we have emotions because the things that are attributes of God, we have in us relatively, not in perfection. That's why, for example, humans have a sense of justice because God is justice, not God has a sense of justice or God thinks about justice. God is just, period. He doesn't deliberate, right? And so we have the attribute of justice in us because God is just. Do we have our perfect knowledge of justice? No, that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. That's why the Holy Spirit mattered, was to help bring us to the knowledge of absolute truth, right? So God has holy anger, quote unquote, in him, because there is such thing. Today, we only speak about anger, but that's a state. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a feeling for God. So for example, wrath. Do you know what wrath means in its most basic, primitive Hebrew form? It means face, anger, or nostrils. That's actually what the word means. Socially, that's not how you use it anymore. If you're angry with someone, you don't yell and be like, man, nostrils, right? But early Jews did. <laughs> um, because what they were doing is, is called the anthropomorphization. I can't even say it right, which is giving human attributes to God. When we want to make sense of something, right, we can only use human terms, right? Even in explaining this chapter, Paul's language was difficult. We had to use analogies, right, of saying it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. So to understand God, we say it's like this or it's like this or it's like this. But God as absolute cannot be relative. If God, that's why we say things like God repented himself, which means God changed his mind. God can't change his mind, right? Like you can't, if, if he's stable, then there's something messed up. If, if he's sitting there being like, hmm, you have a good point. If he had to say you have a good point, then he can't be omniscient. They don't follow, right? So any emotion that you have is because God has the absolute of it. So you're right in your way of thinking. Um, but God doesn't go through emotions. The Lord Jesus Christ did by accepting the condition of humanity. So he, the Lord Christ experienced humanity exactly as we do. Okay, so the Lord incarnate did. But the Trinity in its pure essence, absolutely not. It, it can't happen. Okay, we, more questions are coming. Uh, we've got a question here about, uh, was Adam in union with God in the Garden of Eden pre-sin? And is that drastically different from our current active pursuit of communion with God? Um, I'm going to say yes, because the, the chorus of the fathers um, says that. Um, there is debate that I won't get into um, about 
could there have been a growing of that unity? I have no idea. I don't know. Um, all I know is that in the breathing of the Spirit, we also receive the Holy Spirit. That's what St. Cyril of Alexandria um, and St. Athanasius say, that in addition to the human spirit, and we lost it. Um, and that that caused death. Anything more than that, I'm not comfortable enough to speak. I don't, I don't know enough. There might be some people who know more. So I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, is salvation a guarantee for us to be confidently hopeful in it, like it says in verse 5? Someone once said to me that we can know that we're headed in the right direction, but we don't actually know what's going to happen, so nothing is a guarantee. I think that's the balance between um, pious um, abjection um, with presumptuous um, hopefulness. By that, what I mean is we've got to be really careful to not have this attitude of like, of course I'm going to heaven. Jesus, Jesus saves, bro. Um, and which was, I think, a reaction, to be honest. And whenever I use another denomination, I'm not using it to be sarcastic. But I think it was a response to Protestantism. Right when there was a wave, and not all, not even all Protestants were believing this actually, but when there was a wave of once saved, all saved, you just declare faith, you're good forever, right? Um, I think there's a reaction to them to say, no, you're not, right? And then pull all the verses of woe is me and my sins are before me and I may die, etc. Right? And so what I would say is that it's human to look at that. But what I would say is that your spiritual life should look beyond that. Your spiritual life shouldn't be, shouldn't be about you at one point and you assessing your goodness or badness at one point. That's why St. Paul says, I don't waste time. I don't even judge myself. Right? Because if you sit there talking about how good or bad you are, what a waste of time because that's a crummy relationship. If you're, if you're in a relationship with someone and you, and, and any couples, like straight up, not that I'm going to get into relationship advice, I'm celibate. But once a couple starts saying things like, I do this, 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 you, you know there's already a problem in that relationship. Once you've had to get into enumerating the goods and bads, there's a problem in the relationship. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be good, but it's that when you reach that point, something in your relationship is off. And so we live in the hope, as St. Paul said, of our acquittal. But he says, how do we get this acquittal? By faithfulness. So those who are saying, I'm not sure, are, are not doing a wrong thing because they're questioning their faithfulness. Right? They're saying, am I faithful though? Am I willing to go to the point of death? And so that should ground us, right? Of, of neither being too arrogant and at the same time not being self-hating. Because at the end of the day, it's through the person of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, a couple of questions. I think they're in response to the emotion question again. Um, so you mentioned, uh, if God cannot change his mind, then how is salvation, the salvation of Nineveh explained? 
And then how do we understand Christ flipping over the money changers tables in the temple and that Christ wept at Lazarus death if God does not have emotions? I apologize for keeping the emotion question open, but I've wondered about those instances. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, we're good. So in advice, I'm not going to get into full details online, but what I would say is that um, Christ was always going to save them. Right? That's actually why Jonah didn't want to go. Right? Jonah was like, I know you. You're going to say this. I'm going to go. You're not going to kill them. And I'm going to look bad. So even Jonah knew that God was always going to save them. There was, there was no, there was no, um, he saved them in spite of them. <laughs> um, there was no um, doubt about what God was going to do. What he brought into dialogue through Jonah was their participation. Um, with the temple, that's what I'm saying, there is holy anger. Um, and so that temple actually is a fulfillment of one of the of multiple prophecies, actually. There's different ways to read of um, the zeal of the temple consumed me. Um, there's a lot until now of discussion about how to translate that particular verse because one of the readings of it is my zeal consumed the temple. Um, and so the day of, of reckoning, the day of wrath on the temple was initiated through Christ's um, actions in the temple. Um, and so just like the day of wrath on the fig tree was, there was when, when Christ exposed the fig tree and said, you're fake, right? And so those events that you're seeing in the life of Christ are exactly what we're talking about. It is about holiness coming into clash with darkness. It is literally light and dark. And, and you particularly see that in the gospel of John where that happened because John's whole gospel is light versus dark, the whole thing. He comes back to it over and over and over and over again. Um, and that's why that's the gospel where he goes hardcore at it. Okay, we've got a question here about John the Baptist. Uh, what does it mean when Jesus said, to, uh, said St. John the Baptist is the least in the kingdom of, of heaven, asking for a concerned friend who is, no, who is nowhere near as righteous as St. John the Baptist? Um, I want to get a better answer for you guys next week. But the gist of it was that he was saying, but then he says, but then the least of you is greater than him. Um, and he's, he's doing two things. One is that John had just been killed, right? Or arrested. One of the two had just happened. And people had their opinions about him. And Christ was exalting him saying, no, this guy is a beast, right? This guy that it just happened to. And of all of you, of all of the old covenant, because he says that the least of these, those are the new covenant, um, you're all in a higher status than him. You who have this reconciliation that have the, the new covenant, because St. John dies still in the old covenant. That's, the, that's what I had received. Um, Abuna, if you have a, a, another interpretation, please go for it. And I can look it up for more patristics for next week. If I remember. Nope. Okay, next question. 
Uh, when you talk about the wrath of God being light annihilating darkness, can this be related to St. Isaac the Syrian's concept of the scourge of love? And what are your thoughts on the following? Can we take this to mean that there will be an end to the suffering in Gehenna? Um, I'm not going to touch the end of Gehenna with a 10-foot pole. Um, nice and light, right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going there. Um, I would say, yes, that's compatible, like the first part of it, with Isaac the Syrian. Um, I would say it's more analogous, analogous actually with, there's a quote that Paul had to say, put in, shout out to Paul, um, about remedies, right? About the fact that medicine can be painful, but it's, he it's healing. Um, and so the love of God, when it purifies you, it, yeah, it's, it's painful. So yeah, it's, it's definitely in line with, with uh, Isaac, the, the Syrian. Okay. I think that's it. We're done. Thank you guys. Thanks, Abba. All right. Uh, let's pray our father before we go. Um, thank you guys so much. And please feel free to send in suggestions for how this could be done more effectively. This is new for all, all of us. Um, and thanks for St. Mark and St. Mary of Egypt for hosting this. Um, not just hosting it, this is their meeting um, that oh. we've all hijacked, to be honest. So thanks. Best everyone. that everyone's here. This is amazing. So we'll just do this for the rest of our lives, by the way. You'll always be speaking on Mondays. Blah, blah. No matter where you are, we'll... we'll... Are you blah blahing me? Right before prayer. Did you, see, did you guys all see that? I saw that. Uh, real quick, there was a few people asking uh, where we would post the where would you post the recording. Um, um, it'll probably go on um, NF four. Can uh, Mina, if I give you access to the recordings, yeah, I could take care of that. A few people contacted me, so I could take care of that. Okay, thanks. All right, All right. Uh, pray for me, and let's. Uh, Let's pray our Father. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, hear us through the intercessions and praise our Holy Mother, Theotokos, St. Mary, the great Saint of Antony, Pope Clos VI, and Mary Mina, when we pray with all thanksgiving, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but lead us from evil. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory. Bless and for amen. Now the love of God the Father, the grace of the God Son, the communion and good Holy Spirit with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Good night, everyone. Holy Spirit. Thank you, Buna. With your spirit, Abby. Salam. Thank you. Good night.